Do you know that certain peptides can benefit those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's? If you want to learn more about how peptides can help with thyroid autoimmunity and other chronic conditions, then you'll want to check out the brand new Peptide Summit hosted by Dr. Jenny Flagar. In fact, peptides play a huge role in helping Dr. Jenny overcome her Hashimoto's condition. To register for the free Peptide Summit, visit saymythyroid.com forward slash peptides. Hey, this is Dr. Eric. And when it comes to hyperthyroidism, most of the resources out there relate to Graves' disease. However, there are other types of hyperthyroid conditions, and one of these is toxic multinodule goiter. And if this is what you have, then this episode is meant for you. Just to let you know, I discuss both conventional and natural options, but of course, with my background, I'm usually in favor of taking a natural approach initially so that you can address the underlying cause of the problem. And with that being said, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to the Save My Thyroid podcast, hosted by Dr. Eric Osansky. To stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics, visit SaveMyThyroid.com. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. Now let's head to the show. Welcome back to the Save My Thyroid podcast. This is Dr. Eric Osansky, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about toxic multinodule goiter. So let's go ahead and start by discussing what is toxic multinodule goiter. So multinodule goiter, this is the most common of all the disorders of the thyroid gland. And this involves a goiter, and a goiter is a swelling of the thyroid gland. So toxic multinodule or multinodule goiter is a goiter in the presence of multiple thyroid nodules, and toxic multinodule goiter, this involves multinodule goiter in the presence of hyperthyroidism. So how is toxic multinodule goiter diagnosed? Once again, the toxic part indicates that the person has hyperthyroidism. Sometimes the person has a noticeable goiter, while other times the practitioner will need to rely on palpation, or they might need to do a thyroid ultrasound. If the goiter is large enough, this can result in symptoms such as difficulty swallowing, cough, as well as hoarseness. Also, if someone has large nodules, this also might be detected through palpation. But once again, a thyroid ultrasound very well might need to be indicated. When I went to an endocrinologist when I was dealing with Graves' disease back in 2008 is when I was diagnosed. And the endocrinologist I saw, she palpated my thyroid and she didn't think I had thyroid nodules, but I was the one that insisted on the thyroid ultrasounds. And sure enough, it didn't show thyroid nodules in my case, but sometimes the endocrinologist can't tell by palpation and they need to do an ultrasound. So what causes a multinodule goiter? Anything that elevates the TSH, TSH is thyroid stimulating hormone, and a temporary elevation might not be a big deal, but if it's elevated for a few weeks or a few months, uh, this can cause a, a goiter. And some of the things, some of the factors that can cause an elevation of TSH. So iodine is very controversial in the world of thyroid health. But if someone does have an overt iodine deficiency, this can cause hypothyroidism and can cause an elevated TSH. 
goitrogens as well. Cruciferous vegetables are considered to be goitrogenic foods, but quite frankly, most people will do okay with cruciferous vegetables. And you know, with hyperthyroidism, some people actually try to manage the hyperthyroidism by eating cruciferous vegetables, and that usually doesn't help. Soy also considered to be a goitrogen. Also, there could be genetic factors, inborn errors of thyroid synthesis. And then according to the research, smoking, stress, as well as uh, certain drugs can be a factor when it comes to multinodule goiter. And then also, according to the research, and I've seen in my practice that problems with estrogen dominance and estrogen metabolism also can be a factor with multinodule goiter. And then also insulin growth factor one and other thyroid stimulating factors, insulin resistance. Again, this is the research that shows this, that this could be a factor with both goiter and nodules. So that, of course, falls under the category multinodule goiter. So what are some of the signs and symptoms of toxic multinodule goiter? Well, with toxic multinodule goiter, you're, you're dealing with hyperthyroidism. So really, it's going to be the same signs and symptoms when compared to someone with Graves' disease or someone even with subacute thyroiditis or Hashitoxicosis. So you're going to typically see increased heart rate, heart palpitations also common. Some people have tremors. Some people will experience weight loss. I lost 42 pounds when I dealt with Graves' disease, but not everybody with hyperthyroidism experienced weight loss. Some people do experience weight gain. A lot of people experience heat intolerance, anxiety. Some people experience loose stools. A lot of people experience hair loss. You won't experience all these symptoms. Maybe you will, but some people will only experience a few of these symptoms. But So these are some of the signs and symptoms when it comes to toxic multinodule goiter. And because of the goiter, the person might also experience other symptoms such as discomfort of the neck, also difficulty swallowing, and maybe in some cases even difficulty breathing, especially if they have a very large goiter. So next, I'd like to discuss having toxic multinodule goiter and an autoimmune condition such as Graves' disease or Hashimoto's because many people who have multinodule goiter or toxic multinodule goiter, they don't have an autoimmune component, but some people do. And there are three main types of thyroid antibodies, and this includes thyroid peroxidase antibodies or TPO antibodies, thyroglobulin antibodies, as well as thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins. So thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins, these are specific for Graves' disease. TPO antibodies we see in both Graves and Hashimoto's, more closely associated with Hashimoto's, but according to the research, 60 to 80% of people with Graves will also have TPO antibodies. And then thyroglobulin antibodies, those are more closely associated with Hashimoto's, although there are some people that have all three of these antibodies. So I've had some patients with toxic multinodular goiter who had elevated TSI levels. So they have the antibodies for Graves and toxic multinodular goiter. And I've also had some patients with toxic multinodular goiter who had negative TSI levels but had elevated TPO antibodies and or thyroglobulin antibodies. So if someone has toxic multinodular goiter and they have an autoimmune condition, not only do you want to address some of the factors I already mentioned that can cause the toxic multinodular goiter, like estrogen dominance, estrogen metabolism, but you also want to address what's causing the autoimmune component. So let's discuss some of the conventional treatment options for toxic multinodule goiter. So there's antithyroid medication that's commonly given to help manage the symptoms to lower the thyroid hormone levels. And then some people might want to know about low-dose methimazole, 
in the United States, you don't see low-dose methimazole used as an option as much, as, as frequently as, as you do in other countries. But it is an option to consider, especially since a lot of doctors will just jump into radioactive iodine or thyroid surgery. They might not want to put the person on antithyroid medication. For Graves, it might be a different story because some people with Graves will take the antithyroid medication. They'll go into remission, even though the remission is usually temporary because the cause has never been addressed. But still, they might go into that temporary state of remission. But it's a little bit different with toxic multinodular goiter. So some endocrinologists won't want to give antithyroid medication, at least not on a long-term basis. And so they might just want to jump into surgery, radioactive iodine. But low-dose methimazole might be something to consider. Obviously, I'm going to recommend trying to address the cost of the problem, but we're focusing on conventional treatment options here. And then radioactive iodine, again, wouldn't be my first choice, but I need to mention it here because it is a treatment option, a conventional treatment option, as is thyroid surgery. So many endocrinologists, as I mentioned earlier, will recommend thyroid surgery or radioactive iodine to their patients with toxic multinodular goiter. So there's three other treatment options specifically for thyroid nodules that I want to discuss. So one is percutaneous ethanol injection. This technique involves injecting ethanol into the toxic nodule under ultrasound guidance. Studies show that it can be very effective in shrinking benign cystic and mixed thyroid nodules. One study involving 20 autonomously functioning thyroid nodules showed that 17 of 20 patients had significant shrinkage of their thyroid nodules after receiving percutaneous ethanol injection. And then another study showed that it can be effective in the treatment of large toxic thyroid nodules. So pain is the most common side effect, but other less common side effects include facial flushing, a drunken sensation, headache. Some people experience mild dizziness, perithyroidal or perinatal uh, ethanol leakage, intracystic hemorrhage, local hematoma, secondary infection, focal cord paralysis in rare cases. So anyway, these are symptoms that can occur during or after percutaneous ethanol injection for cystic thyroid nodules. Next, let's discuss percutaneous laser ablation. So this treatment is also done under ultrasound guidance. And the advantage of this is that it is minimally invasive. And so a few studies show that laser ablation is safe and effective in reducing nodule volume and neck symptoms. The downside is that it also doesn't do anything to address the cause of the thyroid nodule. And as a result, regrowth of the thyroid nodule can occur. It doesn't always occur, but it's a possibility. A few studies show that this can help to reduce the size of autonomously functioning thyroid nodules that are associated with toxic multinodular goiter. And this treatment might also be an option for malignant thyroid nodules. Again, this is according to the research. If you happen to have one or more malignant thyroid nodules, maybe speak with another practitioner. I can't say I'm an expert when it comes to percutaneous laser ablation. I'm just diving into some of the research here. So as for the side effects, one journal article showed complications occurring in 0.5% of cases, eight patients, and all consisted of voice changes due to vocal cord palsy. Uh, with complete recovery after three months. And then the third method I like to discuss is percutaneous radiofrequency thermal ablation. So this is yet another treatment that is performed on the ultrasound guidance, and it involves thermally ablating the thyroid nodules. So this treatment can be used for autonomously functioning thyroid nodules. 
And some of the potential side effects include a transient voice change, hyperthyroidism, hematoma, skin burn, edema, coughing, as well as nausea, vomiting. So let's now discuss action steps you could take for toxic multinodular goiter. I am going to really talk about addressing the cause of the problems during these action steps. If you have to take medication to help manage the symptoms, of course, you want to be safe. So if you need to take antithyroid medication, such as benthimazole or carbimazole or PTU, that's perfectly fine. Or you might consider taking an herb such as bugleweed, which is an herb with antithyroid properties. But whether you take antithyroid medication or an herb such as bugleweed, you also want to do things to address the cause of the problem, such as supporting estrogen metabolism. I mentioned earlier how estrogen dominance, problems with estrogen metabolism can be a big factor with toxic multinodular goiter. So you want to do things to support estrogen metabolism. You might even want to do some testing to see if you have an estrogen metabolism problem. So I like dried urine testing to look at the actual estrogen metabolites. And you could also, of course, test for the levels and look at estradiol, look at total estrogens, look at progesterone, because estrogen dominance is not just high estrogen, but if someone has low progesterone, that's considered a state of estrogen dominance. But dried urine testing has advantages that in that it also looks at the estrogen metabolites. And then as far as what specifically to do, you could eat broccoli, other cruciferous vegetables, and broccoli sprouts are really good for supporting estrogen metabolism. So maybe have half a cup to a cup of broccoli sprouts. uh, So you could buy them locally or maybe even grow your own. And some people will take a supplement called diendolimethane or DIM. So that's also something to consider. But I would would try to do as much as you can through food. There are times when I will give a DIM supplement, especially if I do a test for estrogen metabolism, do dried urine testing. And the person has an obvious problem with estrogen metabolism and we're not just guessing, then in that case, I might have them take a DIM supplement. Healthy estrogen metabolism is also depends on healthy methylation, healthy sulfation, healthy glutathione. So you want to make sure that all these are in order. So methylation, very advanced topic, and maybe I'll do a future episode on methylation, but methylation dependent on nutrients such as folate, vitamin B12, vitamin B6 as well, and then healthy sulfation, also important, and relying on sulfur-based foods such as broccoli and kale and garlic and onions. Also healthy glutathione is important for healthy estrogen metabolism. So glutathione, cruciferous vegetables are food sources, precursors to glutathione. Same thing with garlic, but also supplements such as NAC, the NAC, N-acetylcysteine, that's a precursor to glutathione production. Selenium is a cofactor for glutathione. Some people will choose to take a glutathione supplement such as liposomal glutathione or acetylated glutathione, those are options too. Also, glucuronidation, I won't get into glucuronidation, but that's another phase two detoxification pathway, so supporting glucuronidation. So all these things are important for supporting estrogen metabolism. And just supporting overall detoxification also could make a big difference. What I just mentioned, methylation, sulfation, glutathione, glucuronidation, these are all phase two detoxification pathways. So just doing things overall, even like infrared sauna, that's going to help. And then also make sure that you're having regular bowel movements, that you're not recirculating the estrogen by being constipated. So make sure you're having regular bowel movements. And then insulin resistance also 
could be a big factor. So if someone has insulin resistance, type two diabetes, you know, that's also important. So diet is huge when it comes to insulin resistance, eating a low carbohydrate, not necessarily ketogenic diet, but in some cases, ketogenic diet might help. Ketogenic is high fat, very low carbohydrate, so 50 grams or less. Also, if someone has, well, I was going to say Graves disease, but we're talking about toxic multinodular goiter. So for Graves, I'll recommend autoimmune paleo diet, which also is low carbohydrate diet. But, but either way, I would focus on whole healthy foods. I would focus on a low carbohydrate diet if you have insulin resistance. Doesn't mean you have to go less than 50 grams per day, but definitely less than 150 or 150 grams or less per day of carbohydrates if dealing with insulin resistance. Again, probably a good idea to work with a practitioner because with insulin resistance, there could also be an inflammatory process present as well. So diet alone may not help. Uh, Of course, either way, you want to start with diet. Sometimes taking nutrients or herbs such as chromium or alpha-lipoic acid or herbs such as gymnema might help or berberine, but it really depends uh, on the person. If you do address these factors, try to address the cause of the problem. And if this doesn't help, then you might want to consider the three treatment options I mentioned. I will say that in some cases, there might be justification for jumping into one of the three treatment options. Maybe even in some cases, thyroid surgery, the surgery should be a last resort. But if someone is having difficulty breathing, difficulty swallowing, then they might not have time to address the cause of the problem. But if you do choose one of the other three options I mentioned, then you definitely want to also address the cause of the problem. Because when it comes to using one of those options for removing nodules, there is the chance that the nodule will grow back. So if you didn't address the estrogen metabolism problem or the insulin resistance problem, then it might grow back in the future. So either way, you always want to try to address the cause of the problem when dealing with toxic multinodule goiter. All right, well, that is all I want to discuss with regards to toxic multinodule goiter. I hope you learned a lot and I look forward to catching you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Save My Thyroid podcast. If you haven't done so already, make sure you hit subscribe to stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review. Thank you so much for tuning in. In this episode, I briefly mentioned how broccoli sprouts can support estrogen metabolism. The problem is that in some areas, broccoli sprouts aren't easy to find. You could try a local health food store or a farmer's market perhaps even on eBay. Okay, not eBay. But another option is to make your own broccoli sprouts. I personally have never done this before, but this doesn't mean that you shouldn't consider it. And there are many resources online where you can learn how to grow broccoli sprouts in the comfort of your own home. And I'll include a few of these links in the show notes, which you can find by visiting savemythyroid.com, clicking on podcast, and then you'll just scroll down and click on one of the episodes. I want to let you know about a product called Hepatomune Supreme, which is a unique supplement that has a rare combination of N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC, milk thistle, and schisandra to support the liver. And it also has a few mushrooms that can help support the immune system, including cordyceps, which has both immune modulating and adaptogenic properties and is great for those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's. To learn more about Hepatomune Supreme, visit SaveMyThyroid.com forward slash liver support.